Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode. We have to estimate which is the same situation we've been in since 2009. So I'm reasonably confident in saying that Pogacar did that climb at 6.65, 6.7 watts per kilogram for the 16 minutes and 10 seconds of the climb. The, 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 the real breakthroughs that like pull the curtain back are not coming from anti-doping, they're coming from police. So it is the third podcast of the 2020 Tour de France on our Science of Sport podcast. And uh, I have a little clip I want to play, which was... Which was uh, part of our first podcast that we did two, two weeks ago. And uh, here it is. So but just remind fun. us what yes. your podium was. My podium, I didn't, I didn't give you a podium, but I will now. I'll give you Pogacar, Bernal, Roglic okay. as my top so it's three. the same three people, but the order Except the order is different. So I'm um, putting it out there. Right, so I'm going to claim that. <laughs> as a victory for the non-scientist in this in this science of sport podcast, Ross. Well, tell because... us why. <laughs> tell us why you really chose Pogacar at that moment, please. <laughs> well, I, I I have to admit that I I, I chose him largely because you chose chose Roglic, and I couldn't choose Roglic myself because there would be no fun in that. Um, and I guess to some extent, I thought there was an outside chance. But if you had to had to commit money to it, I think I probably would have gone Roglic because it was uh, very much a surprise that Pogacar won it in the end. Yeah, especially by Saturday because when we last spoke, well, when you made that prediction, very little had happened. It was week one. But yeah. even when we last spoke on the second rest day, um, Roglic hadn't yet opened up as big a lead. I think it was 40 seconds. It ended yeah. up 57 and your pick was looking less and less likely the closer yeah. we got to Paris and then yeah. all changed on Saturday. It was quite a quite an extraordinary day, I think. I. Oh. <laughs> I thought I thought Pogacar could win that time trial, but I didn't think he'd win it by yeah. even 15 seconds, let alone 57. I I thought that Roglic, because he had the last guy advantage, yeah, he'd be getting the splits and the gaps to Pogacar. And I figured that in the initial, especially in that first period up to that first intermediate time check, which I think was at about 11K, mm. I figured he'd be happy to concede a few seconds because... Pogacar was going to go out hard and Roglic could measure his effort maybe a little bit. Yeah. Okay, Which is normally what happens when the yellow jersey goes last and can do that. Yes. And, in the past. And the guy chasing him has to go for it. And there's yep. more chance you're going to go too hard than, than not hard enough. Yep. So I figured, okay, Roglic has lost. Okay, that was a bit more than I thought, but I figured he'd, he'd, he'd claw it back between the first and the second intermediate time check and he didn't. Mm. So that was concerning. And then... Getting to the bottom of the climb, I think he had 26 seconds. And now you've got a bike change, you've got all those spectators. You wouldn't want to leave anything to chance or a technical, a slip chain or something. So at that point, you think, well, this is not a good day. Roglic is not, this is not going according to any plan. And then the moment he got on the climb, he just did not look mm. like Roglic had looked for three weeks. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't catering. I mean, he wasn't, sorry, cratering. He wasn't, uh, yeah, he wasn't, wasn't imploding. there. No. And even the numbers we saw afterwards, estimates that they are, he acknowledged, 
still had him climbing at six and presumably he was at about six on the flat roads yeah, also coming Kuchita, in. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it wasn't as though the guy just had a meltdown like some some people in the past have had, but he mm. just he just didn't look. I'd, I'd gone cycling with a friend of mine, Richard, that morning and we were commenting that Rog- Roglic has looked so in control and he looked so compact and so mm. solid on the bike. And for the first time, he, he looked like he was spinning and inefficient. And sure enough, that gap got smaller, smaller, smaller. And actually, in the end, it wasn't even close. No, and I think the timing was the thing that it got um, to everybody. I actually, and what, what, one of the discussions we're going to have today is I had the chance to talk to the head of the medical team for the UAE team, Jaron Swart, who is a South African based here in Cape Town. And uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about what he told me this morning. Um, but one of the things he told me was that um, when they were looking at uh, th- that, that morning, where there was a possibility of Pogachar winning overall, they felt that it was absolutely a good chance because they'd seen that in the past Roglic hadn't done well in the last half of the of the race. Even though he'd done well on the climb on the Wednesday, he'd, he'd, there was a vulnerability with him in the second, on the third week of the Grand Tour, which is what Chris Froome had actually said, that he predicted that Roglic was going to battle in the, in the last week of the Tour. He might have only battled in the last three days of the tour. Well, thirty k's of the tour, yeah. really, because yeah. on the on the day that they went over and they finished, remember there's that dust section. They didn't finish on it, but they went yeah. on that gravel section. Yeah, he dust. was going. He was. He actually looked like the strongest guy in the race, and he yeah. thought, okay, he's actually got this right. Because, because yes, True. he has in the past um, stumbled at some point in a three week stage race. Mm. And if there was a doubt, and I mean, I know, like now we're Captain Hindsight sitting here. If mm. there was a doubt about Roglic, it is that. Everyone has a bad day in the Tour de France. I mean, you're not going to ride for 21 stages and feel fantastic all the time. And his bad day wasn't dreadful, but it was bad enough that his 5% underperformance coincident with some other guy being 5% more than anyone maybe thought was possible. Suddenly you've got this massive swing and that changes the entire complexion of this yeah. discussion. Because I figured we'd sit here and talk about the Col de la Lowe's and the climb yeah. up and that, how interesting that was and so on. And now it's almost an afterthought. It's like yeah. it didn't even happen. I mean, I'll be honest. I, when I was watching the, tour, the the tour on Saturday, I was on my indoor train and I thought, well, I'll watch the first bit and I'm pretty sure it's going to be a procession because a minute, you know, for those of you that don't watch a lot of cycling, a minute at the top end of that leaderboard going into a, a 30-kilometer time trial, as Ross has explained, is something that's, usually quite insurmountable given the form of Roglic at the time so what we saw on Saturday and for those of you that are cycling fans that watch that that uh, Saturday stage you'll you will have realized it, it will go down in history as probably one of the most epic and historic stages similar to Laurent Fignon and um forget his name now um, Le Monde and Le Monde back in 1989 mm. when uh, Le Monde beat him by three seconds in the final time trial in Paris so it was one of those classic moments where I think we'll look back in the history of Tour de France's and that will be one of them yeah and there was a while that it looked like it could be as close as that and yeah. in the end Roglic I mean he just he lost he fell away by three seconds a k in the last uh, yeah. five or six on the climb yeah and more actually because his climb time was considerably slow I think Roglic was 11 fastest on the climb and that tells you that he's not in a great day because there was no point in the preceding three weeks that Roglic looked like anything other than the second best guy in the race you could say that in the first climbs in the Pyrenees on the Paris sword and so on Pogacar looked good Mm. as good if not slightly better than Roglic Mm. you never know because Roglic was managing the race at that point so Mm. you never quite know if he was riding at 99% to 100 whereas Pogacar had the 
the deficit to make up from when he lost time in the wins. And um, when he lost time in the wins, he lost a minute and a half. It was, yeah, 120, yeah. I think it was. Yeah. So which, was, which actually, in the end, gave him a bit of license. He could then go on the attack, and he, he was on a longer leash than some of the other guys might have been. So that helped. And it also meant that he didn't have to have a team as much around him as he might have had otherwise. He could yeah. take the lead at the last possible moment, which was the perfect scenario for a team that had lost a couple of guys and didn't have, let's be honest, they didn't have the collective engine that Jumbo Visma had. Mm. Um, but what I, was, what I was getting at really is that having never shown himself to be anything other than a top two guy, suddenly he's 11th. Now, mm. that's not a good day for Roglic. And whether it's a case of a, a post-lockdown season one week too far, yeah. whether it's just because you do, you do get bad days. I mean, you know, even we do. Mm. And when we have a bad day, we're just five, ten percent off. These guys yeah. are three to five percent below, yeah. and we can talk a little bit on it because I know you've got some questions about the mechanical elements of their riding. And I think mm. we'll come back to Roglic and what's maybe going wrong because the cadence is normally high. It looked higher than usual on the climb yeah. on Saturday, and he just didn't have watts. I mean, and this this was you know sometimes time trials. The the one you were mentioning there, Le Mans Fignon, is often said to have come down to aerodynamics. Remember, because Le Mans yes. rode with a helmet. This well, wasn't the, the time trial bars actually. Le Mans. It was the first sorry, it was the time, time trial, trial bars. bars. Yeah, Correct. sorry, yeah. I thought it was the yeah. aero helmet, but you're right. Yeah. They both had that, but it was the bars. Yeah. There was a story going around actually, just out of interest, where because he was in the yellow jersey, he can't wear his team's own suit. Yes. He's got to wear the. And apparently, lots. Um, Jumbo Visma had invested a lot into a aerodynamic suit which mm. guys like um, Dumoulin and Vote from Art would have worn and he couldn't wear it yes in the end though that's kind of a wash because neither could uh, Pogacar mm. also because he was in the white, the white jersey, jersey yeah. yeah but that I mean that's that's a factor but I think in the end and there was also was, a problem with the I don't I haven't actually seen anything on this but there was clearly a problem with his helmet as if his helmet was too small because for those of you that watched it as he was going up that climb his helmet was kind of sitting on top of his head <laughs> like some sort of amateur mountain biker <laughs> um and there was a story even the commentators were saying that there was a problem with his helmet he actually in the post race comment uh, interview said they asked him about his helmet and he didn't want to be drawn into that mm. but he, he he sort of alluded to the fact that there was some issue with the helmet yeah it didn't um, it didn't look like thing. it fit well and there was something <laughs> and it, it, yeah. it honestly reminded me so the aforementioned friend has got kids who are learning to ride bikes and it yes. looked like when they put their helmets on that's what Roglic looked like yes, it was sitting did. on the back of his yeah. head you know so as it long as he falls glam. as long as he falls backwards <laughs> off the bike he'd be okay but any other direction and he's exposed because he so, ripped off the visor actually when they changed when he changed bikes at the bottom of the climb at one stage because he was wearing the visor then he ripped off the visor and threw the visor away obviously yeah. he was just getting a bit hot in there yeah but uh, I was surprised he just didn't take the helmet off completely and but I suppose he couldn't he wasn't legally allowed to he had yeah. to wear the helmet so. yeah he wouldn't have been so yeah. but but yeah we could we could find little things here and there you know but in the end it's this was not a race marginal gains right and this was not a race decided by margins like that this was just a basically a 35 kilometer watt difference that's what it was and yeah. Pogacar just had more gunpowder in his legs than than Roglic did it was a straight up he was straight up outwatted and so let's talk about the yeah. numbers because that is what everybody is talking about and um, what we do know is that um today project um, <laughs> Pogacar, I always get his name wrong. Pogacar. Pogacar, which yeah. actually is the correct spelling, uh, the correct uh, pronunciation. When I spoke to Drew this morning, I asked him how you say his name, and it's uh, Pogacar. Uh, <laughs> Try um, again. That's, that's Pogacar. I'm getting it wrong again. Po Pogacar. Huh? <laughs> no, it's not, but it's Pogacar. It's Pogacar. Right. Okay. It's Pogacar. Sorry. Yeah. Now I'm getting myself confused. My apologies. <laughs> it's Pogacar, and I'll never say Pogacar again. 
That's the last time. Um, but one of the things that we know is that he wasn't, he didn't have a power meter on his bike. Yeah. Uh, Druin was saying that the reason he wasn't sure why that had happened, but he suspects it's because the the bikes were changed as they hit the bottom of that climb. So he went from his time trial bike onto the onto the climbing bike. We know that, for instance, the um, equipment that the team from EOEs is a stages um, equipment where they have a little a sensor, a power meter sensor on the actual crank arm. And I know that in the past that has been an issue for some of the professional riders purely because those carbon crank arms don't work as reliably as if you've got an aluminium one. So there are issues in terms of reading. So potentially there was a reading issue, but we know he wasn't wearing, he didn't have a power meter on, which doesn't give us, there's no power file that, that exists that we can't get hold of. It just doesn't exist. But what do we know about his power and his watts per kilogram doing that ride? Well, we have to estimate, Yeah, which is the same situation we've been in since 2009 and, and before, I only used 209 because that's when I started to look for this stuff in the first place, as I've said in our previous Tour de France wrap-ups. So the estimations are really the best we can do. You can, and the problem with estimations is inaccuracies mm -hmm. because the estimate is based on the speed of the climb. And so there are different ways you can do this. There are calculators available online which allow you to enter the gradient, the distance, the time, and then they'll calculate, well, how much energy did it cost you to get from point A to point B given those input parameters? So in this case, we have a 5.8K climb with 505 meters vertical and 8.7 kilometers distance. That's, mm -hmm. the, that's the Strava segment, yep. by the way, that I've been using. The trouble with that is that if you have a headwind or a tailwind, then your performance, i.e. what's on the stopwatch, changes even at the same power output. So tailwind blows you up faster, headwind slows you down. And as a result, you would overestimate the power for a tailwind situation and underestimate it for a headwind situation yeah. relative to what it actually should have been. So these things are fraught with difficulty. And that's why no matter what method you use, there's another one called VAM, which is what we'll get onto now. Mm -hmm. um, they've, they've tried to correlate when, when, cause some riders make their data available and I've got a few to talk about here. Um, and you can correlate the VAM estimation to the actual, and you can say, okay, how well does it, how well does VAM predict? Mm. Well, yeah, how well does VAM predict power or vice versa? What's the association? And Do you want to give us an explanation of VAM quickly? Yeah, so VAM is vertical ascent meters. So mm -hmm. if you're on a one kilometer climb per kilometer, let's say, and it climbs by a hundred meters, so point B finish line is a hundred meters vertically lower than point, uh, higher than point A, that's a 10% gradient. If you climb that in, in say three minutes, you've climbed 100 meters in three minutes, which means yeah. per hour, you'll climb 2000 meters. And that's the VAM. So it's how many meters do you change vertically in one hour? Mm. Okay. Um, useful when you go hiking, because you know that the summit that you're trying to get to is at, I don't know, 3150 meters, and you're starting at 2000. So you know, you've got 1150 meters to go. Yeah. And you can Count them down as you suffer up the altitude yeah. climb there. Yeah. My van this morning was 450, I think, in one of the climbs. <laughs> I was pretty impressed with that. Yeah, So okay, <laughs> so let's contextualize that. So you can go to Strava and you can find Saturday's time trial and you can find that segment um, on the, the final climb, 5.8Ks. And you will find that most of the elite guys are riding between 1,400 and 1,800 meters per hour vertically. <laughs> So VAM obviously depends on your speed on the climb and the gradient. So mm. if there's a steep gradient and you go fast, you're going to have a super high VAM. If there's a gradual gradient, no matter how fast you go, your VAM's lower. Yeah. Makes sense, right? Yeah. 
So what? So so the VAM, as I say, for the elite guys, Pogacar on uh, Saturday was at a thousand eight hundred odd meters. I think it was a thousand eight hundred and twenty-seven. I'll tell and you that's exactly. That's for that climbing segment. Yeah. So for his last five point eight, one thousand eight hundred seventy-three meters per hour. Now, what an infamous doctor in cycling came up with is a formula that allows you to estimate the power output based on the VAM. Ah, yes, Dr. Ferrari. Yeah, the infamous Ferrari. <laughs> Lance's coach, now yes. serving a life ban. Most cycling listeners will know the name. <laughs> um, and his formula was basically that you take the VAM and you divide it by a gradient factor, which is 2 plus the gradient of this climb, and then you can convert that to a watts per kilogram value. Okay, so right. if we do that for Pogacar on Saturday with that VAM and, and uh, the gradient on that climb, you get 6.5 watts per kilo. And right. The problem we've got now is we don't know how accurate that is for the conditions on the day. Mm. So again, unless you've got direct power output data, and even then, as you've alluded to, sometimes that's not even reliable. Yeah, you can't you can't base everything on an estimate. But what we can do, and what I did was, I went on Strava and I found 15 cyclists who have uploaded their power output data. So, for instance, Leonard Kamner rode the climb in 1738 which is a minute and a half about behind Pogacar. Mm -hmm. He's told us that his power on the day was 402 watts. That's his measured value. Uh, Thomas de Ghent wrote it in 1801 at a power output of 415 watts. Uh, Connor Swift has data. Um, Winner Anacona has data. Nicholas Roche has data. At 1952, he did it in, and that's 369 watts for him. So, yeah. so what I did was I worked out... And that's for the length of that last bit of the climb. This is the, it's the Strava segment of right. that climb, yeah. yeah. So what I did was I worked out what their actual power output was and what their VAM calculated power output was, according to the Ferrari equation. And I looked at the relationship between these. And it's they're more or less related, but not perfectly. Mm -hmm. Some guys... It overestimates by two or three percent. Other guys, it underestimates by two or three percent. But on average, for all fifteen guys that I've looked at, the error is one point two percent underestimate. So if we, so basically, what I've done here now to make a long story short is try to apply a corrective or calibration factor to VAM, mm. so that we can try and interpret Pogacar's number with a bit more confidence. Makes so sense. So we know what the conditions of the, we're getting close to what the conditions were like on the day. Right, because all 15 yeah. of these cyclists finished within half an hour of, well, half an hour before Pogacar. So mm. if the if the VAM estimate is inaccurate because of wind and so on, at least this kind of minimizes that inaccuracy. Yeah. So that, that number for Pogacar of 6.5 would then increase by 1.2%. It ends up being about 6.6 to 6.7. So I'm reasonably confident in mm. saying that Pogacar did that climb at 6.65, 6.7 watts per kilogram for the yeah. 16 minutes and 10 seconds of the climb. Which is exactly what Drun told me this morning. That's okay, what they well, estimated it. Happy so, days. I'm yeah. glad that, yeah. I mean, so you sometimes, concur. well, sometimes even a broken clock is, well, <laughs> every day a broken clock is right twice a day. Well, but you, on guys this, are, you guys are pretty close to the science here, so well, the on fact this, that you concur on that. Yeah, is, and I'm, I think if you, make, if you make cautious and informed assumptions in how you do it, I think you, get, you can actually get pretty close. People yeah. dismiss it as pseudoscience and whatever but i think you can actually do it pretty well and i'm glad to hear that this is reasonable so yeah i would say 6.6 to 6.7 on this climb yeah there was a number circulating on internet twitter johan Neil mentioned it in his contribution to that move podcast and he they were talking a number of 6.9 i can't it's not it's impossible for me that that number could be that high yeah um, how would they have got to that number just not that's getting the science right or just a conjecture well I've, i looked at the um 
looked at some of the calculators that are available online. And listeners, you can go and search for power output calculator. Mm. Um, there used to be one called Cycling Power Lab or some, uh, something like that. And you can, yeah. that's where you input Google. your data. So how you get to that number, some of the input assumptions have to be too aggressive. Your, your, your bike has to be too light. Mm. Mm. Um, your rolling resistance has to be too large or something like that because mm. then you can inflate that number. So okay. I don't believe that it's that high. If it just uh, for interest sake, if it, if it were that high, like as it is, elite cycling always has an alarm bell in the background. It's like tinnitus in your ear, you know. Yeah. But if the if the number was that high for as long as it was, then that's like a siren going off. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, we've spoken in the last two episodes on about what the physiological implications are of these numbers and and how we can interpret them in terms of our. Uh, tension between confidence and skepticism around cycling and we can get onto that now but for me the, the conclusion is that Pogacar climbed at it about 6.6 to 6.7 which is extraordinary when you bear in mind that that comes at the end of a 40 minute flat time trial yeah and the um, end of three weeks of racing at the end of a three-week yeah. stage race that has not exactly been a, a, a pedal soft pedal yeah. around France it was the one of the slowest average speeds of 38.8 kilometers an hour um, just sorry, thirty nine point eight kilometers an hour for the entire route, mm. but it was a hard stage since twenty sixteen. Yeah, because the every almost every climb they did was a record climb. Yeah, I mean Pogacar now holds the fastest ever ascent on the Paris or the Marie Blanc. Yeah, uh, the Col de la Loz on on uh, Wednesday in the third week was that was a record. Obviously, it was a new climb. Obviously, mm. of course, it was. Mm. That's foolish to say. Um, well, not brand new, but hardly done at this caliber before. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so so. To, to produce 6.6, 6.7 for 16 minutes off the back of what must be 6 watts a kilo for 40 minutes, yeah, that's why there's skepticism. I mean, it is, an it is an astonishing performance, but you don't really need to know the power numbers to know that because he beat the whole field by over a minute. I mean, <laughs> yeah. the next best guys who are pretty solid time trial guys and climbers because he had Port, mm. he had Tom Dumoulin, they were way behind. He, he destroyed yeah, the race he on destroyed that. Dumoulin. Yeah, I mean it's, <laughs> it's just, and he was faster than Dumoulin on the flat. Yeah, and then he was a minute over a minute faster on the climb. Mm. He was a minute faster than Port on the flat, and then twenty odd seconds faster on the climb. Mm. So no matter how you try and put that together, you have the best climber in the race doing the best flat time yeah. trial, or the best flat time trial in the race doing the best climb. Mm. It's like that's that's what you call yeah. like total complete domination. So. Yeah. Then, of course, it's cycling, so complete domination equals what? You know, that's, yeah. the, that's the situation we sit with now. Well, that was the question I asked Jaren this morning. I said, obviously, because of performances like that, um, the cynics come out and they say, well, you know, this is another Lance Armstrong-type performance and this is just cycling. Um, and uh, I said to him, how do you deal with that sort of criticism? And he was saying, well, if you look at the numbers, it's all pretty feasible. Um, he has shown over the course of his career that he is an exceptional athlete. One of the things that they have in the UAE team that he stands by is if they, they're always taking a careful look at the biological passports of the cyclists and if there's any anomalies. And they have proven the last year they did pull somebody out, I think, out of the Vuelta um, because he's biological passport was a little bit off turned out it wasn't an anomaly and sadly he was pulled out of the race by management so they're very strict about that and uh, he's very adamant that they are absolutely you know convinced of his achievements purely from a physiological point of view the thing that he explained to me this morning was that Pogacar seems to have the ability to recover really well 
But then his coach, who's the performance director, um, Inigo St. Milan, um, was talking about how he gets rid of lactate clearance. Explain yeah, so, that, what so that the means. story there There's was... There's a tweet about that, wasn't there? Yeah, and, and I think we, we can come back because now that the tour's over, we've got for Pogacar, we've got estimates for his 16-minute performance at the end of a time trial, which because I... You see, I don't... One can make the argument that the 40 minutes before that are below his FTP or his maximal lactate steady state. Let's say it's 5.96 watts and he could normally do 6.12, okay? Yeah. If these terms are making your eyes spin in your sockets, in their sockets, I'm trying to keep we've, got a, we've got an episode from a few weeks back, maybe a month or two, called mm. What the FTP, where we try to explain all these concepts because they really do inform this discussion. So go have a listen to that, but I will, yeah. I will try and explain it again to you. We also know his 25-minute effort from the Paris Sword. We know his 45-minute effort from uh, the Colombier, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And then we know his 60-minute effort because that's more or less, well, it was just 64-minute effort. Mm-hmm. That's how long it took them to get up the Col de Lolo. So I'll try and interpret what those mean. But the physiological context comes from this tweet that Inigo San Milan posted. He, his first tweet said that ever since he tested Pogacar for the first time in 2018, he saw that this was someone metabolically special. And someone on Twitter said would you mind sharing with us one thing out of that test that jumped out at you? And he came back to his credit and he said that the difference, as you, you've said now, Mike, is the ability to clear lactate. When he rides at a high power output, his lactate levels are half those of other world tour cyclists. Now, why does this matter? I, could, I should actually ask you because you've had a tutorial in this stuff for the last six weeks. So, so do, you remember, do you remember what the lactate threshold concept was? Well, it's that turning point when you your lactate sort of becomes overwhelming, but we know lactate is a fuel. Yes. So what's the question again? <laughs> so so what the lactate threshold concept was is applied to performance. So when we yeah. talk about maximum lactate steady state and the ability to have a high power output with very low lactates, what does that signify? Well, it means that you can push a higher wattage, I imagine, without the pain. Uh, yeah, so it's not, remember the lactate is not causing the pain, it's yeah. the flag that denotes the pain. So I used a pretty poor analogy at the time of, like if you're walking through a field with landmines and they're all marked with little red flags, the red flag doesn't blow you up, the mine, the mine that it signifies blows you up. So, yes. that's, so, okay. so lactate by itself is not the problem here, but once you start getting lactate accumulation, so the level of lactate goes up and up and up and up, Fatigue is not following soon, uh, not not far behind it. Right. Okay. So lactate is almost a marker of what your metabolic status is. And the reason that matters is because when we exercise, our bodies are breaking down carbohydrates and fats. If the rate at which we break those fuels down, especially, well, specifically now, carbs, we're, we're taking glycogen and glucose and we're oxidizing it. If that's happening too fast for our capacity, there's a spillover, and that spillover is lactate. Yeah? Yeah. So when you see an elite athlete in any endurance sport, you'd find the same characteristic for runners and, and cross-country skiers as you would for cyclists. When they are able to go at a very high intensity with low lactate, what it's telling you is that they've got a metabolic or a biochemical system that is really good at avoiding that spillover. And so I'm reasonably confident in saying that Pogacar did that climb at 6.65, 6.7 watts per kilogram for the 16 minutes and 10 seconds of the climb. You, we discussed oxidative versus yep. aerobic or anaerobic, if you wish to use the now outdated terminology. Mm-hmm. So in actual fact, if you were to ask what a characteristic of an elite top-level endurance athlete would be, I would have guessed that it would be 
high levels, high power outputs or high exercise intensity with low lactate because they are so good at avoiding the accumulation of lactate because A, they don't produce it. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like if you've got, I mean, you're sitting here drinking from a 500 millimeter bo- milliliter bottle. If I try and fill that bottle at one liter per minute, within 30 seconds, there's spillover. Yeah. The only way I can avoid that spillover is I can slow the rate that I'm pouring the water into it down, mm-hmm. but you don't want to do that because now you're going to be at the back of the race mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. or I need a bigger bottle. Yeah. And that's what we're saying is that Pogacar has got this massive bottle. So he doesn't get spillover. He doesn't get accumulation of lactate because he doesn't, A, doesn't produce it as quickly. And then the other thing elite athletes do is they metabolize their own lactate. And that's what lactate clearance means. So they might produce it in relatively high volumes, but they're also able to turn it. And you just alluded to it is they can take that lactate and then re-oxidize it elsewhere. So they can actually use it as a fuel source. Okay. The net result. Is this genetic or trained? It's both. And so an element of it is genetic. So genetics would set the ceiling. Some people, irrespective of how much they train, will not achieve the level of lactate clearance and therefore Mm the low lactate levels. And remember, <laughs> in fact, when we did the FTP episode, I'd sent you an email and I chucked all sorts of um, <laughs> acronyms and abbreviations, MCT1s, MCT4s. All, uh, those are the molecules that are responsible in part for this lactate clearance and this lactate shuttle. I'm not going to go into detail now. Listen to that if you want to know. Yeah. But the end result is that when you look at a guy like this riding at 400 watts, his lactate levels are very low because his biochemical or his metabolic system is so well equipped to deal with energy flux and demand yeah. that he doesn't produce lactate. And as a consequence, he doesn't produce all the other things associated with lactate that then cause fatigue, hydrogen ions, phosphate ions, that sort of stuff. Makes yeah. sense. Which means that what Jaron was talking about, his ability to recover is then increased. Uh, possibly, but you that know. would be from like an acute effort. Yeah. What what I think what he's alluding to there, I don't know. You, he said it to you is is you've been on the bike for four and a half hours, the last hour of which was really hard on Wednesday. Mm. You got to do that again on Thursday. Friday may be a little bit easier, but it's still you're still you're not exactly sitting on the couch. No. Saturday you've got to go super hard for fifty seven minutes to an hour. So daily, I mean you you know I mean we we don't even train at anything like this level, but. If you layer five or six good rides, hard rides, one after the other, mm. by the weekend, your legs are knackered. Mm. And that's because we're not recovering very well. To some extent, and actually, yeah. Yeah. Like, the, whole, the whole point of doping is to improve recovery, actually, like testosterone, growth hormone stuff. They accelerate recovery. So mm. it is a key element of performance. So do you think, I mean, just sort of wrapping up the discussion about his physiology, is that a significant enough differentiator between him well, well, and the rest, or is it just a combination of lots of things? Conceptually, it's not a differentiator because mm-hmm. if you ask anyone in the world who works with endurance athletes, they will tell you that a prerequisite to be an endurance champion is the ability to have a high power output with low lactate levels. Because they're, And again, it's not about the lactate. It's about what the lactate says about the underlying biochemistry. This right. is a person who has an enormous oxidative capacity. They have so many little mitochondria that they can just deal with unbelievable energy demands without the suffocation or the noose of fatigue pulling them back. Yeah. So all of those guys in the Tour de France peloton will have a very high level Certainly, Certainly the top 30 cyclists in the world will be exceptional. And you would... I don't know what the metric would be, but let's say it's lactate levels. If you if you took them and you took a thousand people at random from mm. around the world, they would be clearly, clearly different. Mm. The question here really is one of magnitude, not concept. 
is is he that much better than a world tour cyclist? Now, who's he, who's he being compared to? Is he is he being compared to uh, Jerome Cousin, who didn't finish the hard stage, I think, on the Col de Lillehaz and eliminated out of the time? Because he's a great cyclist. He's mm. a world tour guy. He was in breaks, and he's he's good. But he's not Bernal. He's no. not Roglic. He's not uh, pick your winners from the last twenty years. You know. So, mm. as a question of scale, I don't know, and that's why it would be cool to know. But the implication of it is is that if you can if you can ride at 400 watts with almost no lactate or very low levels you can ride at 420 before it starts to come up mm. that sets your ftp literally that's the definition your your maximal lactate steady state is what's the highest power output you can ride at before your lactate levels start to go up and fatigue follows soon after because essentially what he was doing on saturday was performing an ftp test if, yeah it's basically that's it exactly what it is yeah. it's a it's probably because and in United, if you want high power outputs, you go uphill. It's much yes. easier to. So it's it's not it's not a steady FTP, but it's basically an hour where the first forty minutes is at ninety percent, and the last 15, 20 minutes is going to be at a hundred percent of it. So yeah. or beyond it, actually, it's ninety five and one hundred and five. I don't know. Yeah. And that's the big question about that performance is you. I don't know how to interpret those last sixteen minutes in the context of the whole fifty seven because it's not. You see, <laughs> Pocket Shot didn't do a carapaz on the day. Yeah, so let's talk about so, Richard Carapaz because he's an interesting one. Yeah. Because just to give some context to this the discussion, Richard Carapaz, of course, contesting for the King of the Mountains jersey. So his strategy was to go into the bottom of the climb relatively easy, then to nail the climb as hard as he could because the actual climb was the points for the mountain, the King of the Mountains yeah. jersey. And, of course, Pogacar was his biggest competitor. Yeah. So, the so he had to finish above him. If he finished above Pogacar, he wins He wins polka dots. Yes. Yeah. So he has to beat, beat him on that climb. Yeah, on the climb. So we knew that Pogacar was obviously going to go hard right from the gun. Carapaz was going to take it easy. Pogacar drills him on the climb despite having ridden pretty hard. And what was the difference between them? Yeah, I'm just, looking, I'm just looking now. So Pogacar is 16.10, which is obviously the fastest climb. Carapaz manages to do the seventh fastest climb in seventeen twenty-two, so a minute and twelve. Yeah, I mean, and Carapaz, by the way, when we say he went slowly to the bottom, he was the second slowest guy in the whole race. So he really was taking he was, it easy. I mean, it's not like he's not riding at two watts a kilo, like, yeah. but he's he's probably going four and a half. Yeah, which for these guys is is like steady warm-up material. Yeah, and then he's thrashing it for seventeen minutes, and he's still getting buried by a minute. Absolutely, and it's amazing to think. I know. And we were actually sitting there. Uh, WhatsApping each other on Saturday, saying, "I wonder if uh, how yeah. Carapaz is doing." But it, right, it wasn't even close. Yeah, Pogacar was on, and he was on in every part of that route. So I mean, imagine, imagine yeah. Carapaz had to go hard from the beginning. I mean, he, 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 how much? And this is what I don't know: is how much would Carapaz have paid on the climb if he'd had to spend more on the flat? Yeah. So let's say he'd gone thirtieth fastest instead of one hundred forty ninth. I don't know how many guys rode that stage. But let's say he'd really gone for it on the flat. Yeah. Maybe a minute slower on the climb. Now you're talking about a two-minute, two-and-a-half-minute gap yeah. to a guy who won the Giro. And Carapaz is, okay, I don't think he's at the level he was when he won that Giro. But it's still, it just puts mm. into context again yeah. how remarkable that performance was, you know. But it's a, it's a confusing, difficult one to interpret. And sadly, and this comes back to what you, you learned from during this, this morning, is you say, well, we can trust the numbers. But what numbers? The ones yeah. we have to estimate and guess, the 6.9, which I think is too high, the 6.6 .6 that I've estimated, but I don't know how that 6.6 .6 fits into the 57 because what was it 6.1 for 40 or was it 5.7? Because that could change it. Yeah. What's the, what is the maximum lactate steady state? Like I would imagine for Pogacar, it's 6.1 to 6.2. 
So for a fresh 45 to 60 minutes, he could probably do 6.1, 6.2. Yeah. It's, it's impossible. But we've got other performances for Pogacar, also, unfortunately, estimates. Um, you know, so we know that his 25-minute performance was six and a half. We know yeah. that his 45-minute performance was around six, plus minus, I'd say, two to three percent. And we know that his 60-minute performance was 5.8. And I tried, by the way, to adjust for altitude because that 60-minute performance finished at 2.3, yeah. 2,300 meters. And you've got to make that adjustment. So, I mean, without laboring the explanation again, because there's a physiological ceiling beyond which we can't perform, we can start to make inferences about what the underlying physiology is to, to create these performances. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. VO2 max threshold ability and cycling efficiency those mm. are the three inputs a plus b plus c equals performance mm. and so for what for what i've got here for these durations and these um intensities at at an efficiency of 24 percent which is high which is high yeah so typical for cyclists is 22 to 23 but an efficiency of 24 percent pogachar's vo2 max estimate is about 84. if he's less efficient that vo2 max goes to 87 88 89. If he's inefficient, we look, we're talking low 90s, okay? Now, none of those just is... Descri- I mean, I know we talked about this in what the FTP podcast, but just give us a brief uh, description of if, uh, how, do we, how do we see efficiency? What's the easiest way to describe efficiency? So you measure, you measure how much energy the body is using to cycle, and you do that via oxygen levels at the mouth. So this is indirect calorimetry. So that you feel, I'm sure listeners will have seen pictures, either a cyclist or a runner wearing a gas mask and mm. either a bag or a fancy newer machine. Mm. And that thing's measuring VO2 and CO2 levels and breathing rate and all sorts of things. And VO2 is the key one. Yeah. Because we know that when we are exercising at various intensities, every liter of oxygen we burn produces a given amount of energy. Okay. So if I'm cycling at, say, 6.5 watts per kilogram, like... Um, we're assuming Pogacar was doing for that 25-minute effort. Mm-hmm. That works out for him to be 429 joules per second, mm-hmm. given his mass. At the mouth, we would be measuring what's happening there. And if he was 23% efficient, his oxygen consumption at that moment, riding at 6.5 watts per kilogram, would be 80 mils per kilogram per minute. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And you can you can yeah. you can push this up or down using certain assumptions. I've made the best case assumptions for the lowest possible VO two to give the benefit of the doubt to the rider. Okay. Yeah. So, so how we, nice of you? Yeah. Well, you have yeah. to because otherwise people will climb on your head for making False unfair unfair yeah. assumptions. So this is based on the assumption that every liter of oxygen is going to provide five calories, just over five calories. It means that for him to ride at 429 joules per second, watts, his actual energy cost would be 1,865, and the actual VO2 at that point would be 80. Now, it's known that these guys can probably sustain 90 to 95% of max for 25 minutes. 
Therefore, the VO2 max that you calculate turns out to be, I'll tell you now, uh, 89 moles per kilogram per minute. 89 which, which is, is super high. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's incredibly high. Yeah. If he's more efficient, by definition, it means that he's using less oxygen yeah. to do a given workload. He's getting more bang for his buck, as it were. Mm. Then his VO2 max is 84. So, so you have to assume that he's relatively efficient. Yeah, you're going to assume that like the best endurance guy in the world is going to have a relatively good efficiency yeah. combined with a high VO2 max. Now, I've yeah. said before, and I stand by it, there comes a point at which a performance becomes physiologically impossible, mutant, alien, ridiculous, outrageous. Yeah, we've heard those words a lot in cycling, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> even yeah. to describe that performance uh, innocuously, innocently, but that's what people do. Yeah. Lance said, unbelievable performance. Well, Lance, <laughs> like you might not want to use that adjective. Um, so anyway, long and short of it is that if Pogacar is 24% efficient, which is high, riding at these estimated power outputs for these durations, VO2 max estimate is 84. Which is... If he's less efficient, VO2 max is higher. If he's more efficient, yeah. VO2 max goes down. If his ability to ride at a high power output goes up, according to Inigo, that might be the thing, then the VO2 max comes down a little bit that yeah. you estimate. So there's play in this, and that's why you don't want to... And But again... If these data exist from the time that he was tested in 2018, so it's as a it's as a 20 year old, mm -hmm. they would they would contextualize and reassure people about what they're seeing at least. Mm. And it's easy for me to sit here and say it, um, but I would I would if I'm the athlete and that's who I am, I tell people. Yeah, I mean it's not going to help Bernal beat me. Yeah, so I guess to some extent, as you've heard in the past, that. I think uh, Lance and his podcast, uh, which we always say is the second best podcast on the internet, <laughs> where they talked about how they wouldn't share their power data back in the day. I mean, probably for a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons mm. why they didn't want to let too much of the information out to their competitors. Yeah. So there's a competitive element to it, which I suppose is a fair argument. But for people like yourself, if you're in that space, you can probably work it out anyway. Yeah, and, and so, even if you couldn't, you still yeah. you still have a stopwatch. Yes. And so now you know that if you can't climb 5.8K uh, at 8.7% in 16 and a half minutes, Pogatar is beating you. It's beating you. And, a, it, it actually, and it actually doesn't matter if it's 405 mm. watts or 445 watts. The point is that you are still slower than he is. Yeah. So irrespective of how you express it, I can't see that knowing the performance outcome changes it. I, I, get, I get the arguments around training data. Like you don't want to tell people how you've trained because mm. that is a potential source of a, of a large competitive advantage. But when people know your power data in the race, it's irrelevant. Mm. I, I, it's such a weird secrecy thing that doesn't help. And again, cycling needs to do, in my opinion, as much as possible to push back against secrecy, not embrace it even more especially in races because i mean and also if you don't give it to people at six let's say it's let's say it's legitimately 6.6 .6, and my estimate is accurate and Duren mm -hmm. said that as well yeah the whole world's discussing this as though it's 6.9 yeah what would you rather pocket like johan Bernil says it yeah then it becomes now, gospel yeah if it's 6.6 .6 and not 6.9 that changes the conversation because yeah. 6.9 for 17 minutes 16 minutes at the end of a 40 minute time trial, well, a 57-minute time trial, that starts to get into the area where it does become biologically implausible because mm. you would need ridiculous efficiency or VO2 max or a combination of those two things in order for that to become plausible. So I know some people say it's rubbish that you can identify an impossible performance based on this, but it's not. It's, mm. just, that, it's just that where they are now is right up against that limit. 
But yeah. there'll come a point at which it gets just stupid. I mean, what Bjorn Rees and those guys were doing in the late 90s in the absence of any doping regulations, because yes. I couldn't remember, they couldn't test blood transfusions, they couldn't look for EPO. I mean, it was a free-for-all. Mm. They were doing 6.6 for 45 minutes. Now we're talking VO2 max in the high 90s, or you're riding at 95% of your VO2 max for 45 minutes. What was Pintani? He was Pintani one, one was of the climbers seven or something. Allegedly was, seven. Yeah. 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 So yeah. anyway, so the, eventually, eventually you cross over from crazy yeah. human performance to actually just like aliens have invaded Earth performance. Yeah. yeah. But um, see, see, here we sit and we have every intention of trying to be accurate. Mm. Why must we guess? Like, it's just, anyway, I've, I've <laughs> just been saying for 11 years now, like tell people. Yeah. And some people will still say it's stupid, but there's going to be people who are currently in the gray who you might actually convince otherwise and make it available. It would, it would garner, I think, more trust than letting people guess at 6.9 would. So one of the news stories that's come out of the Tour de France uh, after the day after um, the actual finish on Sunday, which actually was Pogacar's birthday, by the way, his 22nd birthday, was that so one of the teams, Sam Sikakaya, were raided. And, um, of course, that was on the Wednesday before the end of the Tour itself, which, of course... This is Naira Quintana's team. Again, it casts aspersions over the rest of the tour um, and again creates even more drama um, on a really dramatic race already. Yeah, I mean, cycling does what cycling does. And <laughs> we thought we'd got through the tour with only speculation and, and questions about performances. But as I've been at pains to point out for two weeks now, um, we can discuss these performances and we can talk about what they mean and why there's doubt and suspicion. But the number, you know, whether it's 6.5 watts a kilo or whether it's an implication at 84 mils a ki per kilogram of oxygen, those things by themselves don't really grow the doubt. But what, what grows the doubt is this stuff. So, yeah. you know, and, and this has been ever present for cycling. From when I started watching it in the 90s and then we had Festina, then we had Lance, then we had Landis, then we had Operation Puerta at the same time as Landis. Mm. We've got Operation Adelas going on in a trial right well, now. You and now Drew actually, just as a complete side... <laughs> story you and Jeroen were actually in, just not, not involved in Operator and Pieta, but you were supposed to be there to look after Jan Uruk at the time. <laughs> the Operator and Pieta happened and you guys just basically rode around Europe for the next yeah, few weeks got, because you couldn't be at the tour. We got spat out of our first shot at it. So now Jeroen's <laughs> made it there. I never did and never, I don't think I ever will. But the story was that Uruk used to come to Cape Town every year with his team to train yeah. in the summer, our summer, their winter. And he came to the Institute in 2005 towards the, the end of the year. Sports Science Institute in Cape Town. Yes, yeah. thanks. Yeah. And we started doing some work with him. We tested him and, and they were sufficiently impressed to invite us to come join them. So we flew out separately, but we were going to meet the team on the first rest day in Po. Yeah. And we'd booked our flights and everything. And then literally like two days before, I forget, but the whole team had been kicked off because of the Puerto scandal with Fuentes and Ulrich was implicated in it. So we had this trip booked and I was like, well, I'm just going to go and have a holiday. And I just didn't even... I ended up following a little bit of the tour. I saw the Alpe d'Huez stage where Landis lost time. Mm. I saw Landis's superhuman effort to win that yellow jersey. But mostly I just ended up drinking beers in French pubs with Australian backpacks. <laughs> um, thanks to Fuentes. And you around with Drew a bit, didn't you? No, no. We ended uh, up, we ended up going our separate ways because he had lots of mates who were following the tour. And yeah. I just said, well... I've seen a lot of the places because I've done it in four and five yeah. and I thought, well, let me just do this as a holiday. Yeah. So that yeah. was my... So anyway, yeah, so going back to the Sarkaya so, Samsic team, right. I mean, the, the, the thing is that, so they have been raiding their, their hotel rooms, but 
they probably had a, they had a pretty miserable tour. So they obviously, well, if they were guilty of something, they were taking the wrong stuff. Well, and whatever whatever led to the police raid wasn't their performances. That's for sure. <laughs> so, so that must have been. A, you can only imagine it's a tip off. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting then the police get involved, and and I don't. We don't know what the outcome of the raid was anyway yet. Do we? Yeah, we, and I, I don't even know if we will. You know, apparently I read mm. this. I can't even remember it. But Quick Step were raided last year. Yeah, I don't. I don't even remember that. I don't remember that. No. But it's a kind of like it's just it's like a shadow that cycling has, and you can never escape it. You know. Mm. Um. So yeah, we had Fuentes. Now Adelas is going on. As I said, now there's this one, and this is the background. So this is the canvas on which the power output numbers exist, yeah. and that's why it's so difficult to believe because. You'll see what will happen. My prediction will be that nothing will happen here. There's going to be smoke and mud and whatever because now they've taken the doctor and a masseuse into custody, I believe, and they were questioned. They questioned Quintana. They allegedly found medical products and methods that could be doping methods. That could involve IV, you know, and, and you, there's a no-needles policy in the sport. So I suspect it's going to be a lot of smoke and mirrors again, allegation, insinuation, but nothing clean. And that's the problem. Like, yeah. It's the same for all these endurance sports. There have been raids on hotels in track and field mm. where they found literally EPO and pharmacy supplies worth of drugs and still no athletes have been implicated in that. I mean, how much cleaner do you want it to be? Yeah. So it's, it's demoralizing. And again, the problem is it's not coming from anti-doping. I mean, maybe maybe I mean, the tip-off was, yeah. tip was from anti-doping, but it, it ends up being a police thing. Yeah. And it's investigations and stuff. And that's why I'm so skeptical when people say, we monitor the anti-doping passport data and we do, I, I've seen data from some distance running athletes who've subsequently been done for doping mm. where they've known for years that this guy was doping and they couldn't nail it down. Yeah. And eventually he has to make such a bad mistake <laughs> in order for it to be a clean doping case that you actually think, how does anyone ever Well, Oprah gets him. Oh, well, <laughs> or, yeah, but, but even, even that, like how did, how did he go down? It wasn't it well, wasn't it was anti-doping because it was whistleblowers and yeah. it was allegations and testimonies and grand jury subpoenas that's how it happens yeah. travis taggart i mean fuentes was not so anti-doping contributes i don't want to pretend like it's non-existent but mm. the, the, the 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 real breakthroughs that like pull the curtain back are not coming from anti-doping they're coming from police and mm. financial police mm. stopping a car at the border kicked mm. off the festina scandal not anything anyway it's just yeah so that's why it's so difficult well, that's to why remain i think hopeful. we look at these we look, we look at these performances and uh, for those of you that love cycling and i'm sure most of you listening probably do like we do is that we can't ignore the fact that there is this shadow that hangs over cycling and um you know we, anytime there's an outstanding performance like that there is always that suggestion that there is some sort of stuff going on behind the scenes. So we have to tackle these subjects, unfortunately. It's just one of those things in cycling. And, uh, you know, you know, full disclosure, both Ross and I really know a lot of the medical team involved with the UAE team at the moment. Um, and, you know, we're certainly very hopeful that uh, nothing untold will come out of that team at all. And um, we certainly hope that Pogacar's performance was very legit. Um, and I'm a bit of a fan of his because I think he, he rides with – a sort of an abandon, which I really love. He's an aggressive um, rider and uh, seems to be a great guy to work with as well. Let's just talk a little bit about some of the some of the mechanics here. Now, Ross and I have had a debate over our WhatsApp. If you can see our WhatsApps at about half past 10 at night sometimes, I don't think we ever sleep. Um, I was throwing out the idea that um, 
Pogacar had was was first of all taller, which he isn't. He's actually a centimeter shorter it's than Bogacar. Funny Bogic. that actually, because I also would have thought he was. I thought he was too. Yeah. I thought he was a tall guy. He's not. Yeah. I was throwing out the idea that because he had a, he had maybe potentially longer legs than Roglic, that the climb suited him because he could push out more power, and he was clearly going up that climb at a slower cadence than Roglic was going up, which then fed into my theory that a power climber like like Pogacar. Um, was more suited to that climb up, up La Planche de Belfi. Um, so is there really, first of all, is there any, I, I sent you a couple of um, studies by the British Journal of Sports Medicine. Unfortunately, they were from 1989 and not many people are in them. But is there any basis for looking at a power climber who's riding at a slow cadence versus somebody that's a high cadence rider? Because in the days of Lance Armstrong, everybody was talking about high cadence now you're seeing a lot of riders like Pogacar who don't ride with a particularly high cadence but mm. seem to power more. Is is there any suggestion that one is better than the other or does it just seem to be style? Well, I think, okay, so like I said, I also thought Pogacar was taller. He's not. So your theory that he might have longer limbs might be the reason why we both thought he is because you do get guys who are just like elongated in the limbs, you know, distal elongation. And that is actually a quality that, distance runners have to have it's almost a prerequisite to be a world-class distance runner is you have to have disproportionately long legs relative to your torso whereas interestingly to be a good swimmer it's the other way around you want short legs and a long torso and so david looks like some sort of cartoon character because his legs are quite short yeah it looks like a human stretching rack caution (laughs) tail, but only on the top half whereas so david epstein who's we've spoken to on the pod wrote the best sports science book you'll read it's called the sports gene and there's a chapter in that book in which he discusses body types in sport. And I actually contacted him when you asked me, because I thought, well, let me go straight to the expert here. Mm. And he, he dug up a whole bunch of stuff and sent them to me, but there's so much I haven't looked at it yet. <laughs> but in his book, he tells the story of Phelps and Hisham al who's the world record holder in the mile. Apparently, they wear the same length pants, mm. even though Phelps is something like 18, 20 centimeters taller than al So whatever height difference they have is entirely because Phelps has a long upper body. So you've got long upper body, short legs as the swimmer, short upper body, long legs as the distance runner. So you're certainly born to do certain things. The constraint in cycling is the pedal, the crank. So you've got this revolution thing. And there's a trade-off between longer cranks and faster pedal speeds. Right. So in order to achieve so, – so longer cranks require faster pedal speed in order to move 360 degrees. It's like – you well, being slower, slower pedal speed, surely. If you've no. got longer cramps, you're pedaling slower, are you not? No, because you, you end up doing that, but yes. to, to have the same cadence. Right. So it's like if I was running on the inside lane of a track and you were running on the outside, mm-hmm. you're the long crank, I'm the short tr- crank. If we both have to complete the lap in one minute, you actually have to run faster than me because you've got okay, further. Yeah, to, it makes sense. Okay. Right. So long cranks require faster pedal speed, angular velocity of the pedal, mm. and that comes at a cost. So what tends to happen is guys with longer cranks have a lower angular velocity, but because of the length of the lever arm, the crank, they can exert higher torque. Mm-hmm. And power is torque times velocity, right? Right. You with me? Yep. So in the end, there's a trade-off between torque and velocity, and one goes up with velocity long cranks. Velocity is the speed of the pedal going around. Yeah, so, an, so it's angular velocity. It. So we right. express that in radians per second. Right. How many radians does that thing cover per second? Radians per second. I'm making notes. Good. I'll test you in six weeks <laughs> like the lactate test. Um, so where was I? So there's a trade-off. Yeah. Longer cranks, higher torque, lower angular velocity. Right. Uh, shorter cranks, lower torque, but better angular velocity. So. Yeah. In the end, there's actually not much evidence that like crank length makes a difference. 
the so other could just be style and preference. Yeah. So in the end, and I mean, as the editor of a magazine, you know, like, what's your advice whenever you cover the subject? Yeah, write comfortably. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, we same. know that, for instance, and I'm sure you're going to tell us about a a, a piece of, of research that you saw that talking about this idea that mm. if you don't write at 90 revolutions per minute as a cadence, which is something really heavily used in cycling um, terms, is that if that's the most efficient sort of cadence. But in my experience and having advised on people in cycling, that's quite difficult to write at 90 unless you're a really good rider. Mm. And sometimes trying to push that high revs it is sometimes counterproductive. Yeah, so there's a study that was published in 2019, towards the end of last year, so maybe a year ago, where they got a bunch of recreational cyclists, and not by any means world tour level guys, like we've been speaking about, but recreational guys, and they make them cycle. And it's a fairly basic study. I, mm. I would like it to be maybe a bit more in-depth, but maybe next time, the next evolution of it. Mm. And they make them ride at 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, and 90 RPM. That's your cadence. 40 is super slow. I mean, oh, you'll feel like you're... Grind. It's, I mean, that's properly grinding. And then 90 is what most... It's almost like conventional wisdom, right, these days. In, in the tour, I'd be surprised if many in that front pack are not in the mid to high 90s. Yeah, I looked at a lot of the cadences. They're all yeah. 85, 90 plus average on every stage and often at peaking at 120. Yeah, and I would imagine crazy. it would be interesting to go back, but Roglic in that time trial was over 100, I'm yeah. pretty sure. Pogacar yeah. was probably in the mid 90s. So it's a 5 to 10% difference. But anyway, back to the study. What they'd measured is VO2, heart rate. They were able to measure oxygen saturation in the quad muscle. And in your, that's the main driver. And obviously, as you exercise, you desaturate. There's less oxygen in your quads. Mm -hmm. And what they found is that when the guys rode at 90 RPM, their heart rate was higher, their VO2 was greater, their oxygen desaturation was greater. In other words, they were more desaturated. Their efficiency was lower. And so the conclusion was that at those high cadences you actually become less efficient and it's probably not advisable but it clearly is advisable for a professional because i've got this darwinian approach to sport that i've brought up before is pros figure out what works and then it persists and if it mm. doesn't work it doesn't persist it dies it's a survival of the fittest mm. survival of the best method and so what they do generally is the best thing for them and so if riding at 70 rpm was the way to go they'd have done it yeah. But they're riding at higher cadences because they, you see, and this is the amazing thing is you think cycling is a basic activity, doesn't need skill. But if you ever see an elite cyclist up close, they actually, they actually move the pedals in a way that makes you realize that oh, they're quite skillful. Beautiful. Yeah. It really beautiful is different to watch. To watch. Yeah, yeah. It's the same thing. I mean, it's even more obvious when you watch, I remember watching um, elite high jumpers warming up and they were doing hurdles, drills and stuff. And I was like, I could do that but I don't look like that. Exactly. I mean, okay, and some stuff I can't do either, but in, a lot. But I can jump over a hurdle. But yeah. they they jump over a hurdle. They got, they got something about them that is hard to pin down, but it's there. And it's the same. The aforementioned Ulrich, when we put him on a stationary bike in a laboratory, he moved the thing as though it was a different machine. I'd never yeah. seen that before up close. And they call it in French, suppresse, mm. which is uh, literally translated means agility and suppleness but it's a great way to describe how a very nice pedaling action looks amongst a pro rider and sometimes you can literally be riding behind somebody on your sunday rider and you can see somebody that has mm. a good pedaling style for those yeah. of you who love cycling yeah. and there's a great story about Maurizio Fondrius, former world champion who used to spend hours in front of a mirror trying to perfect his pedaling stroke so it looked good and um, that was his main thing suppress and how he looked was very important yeah. and yeah. there are some riders and most of those riders in the Tour de France, except maybe except for Bilbao, 
have amazing suplex. Yeah. And they just look the part. They do. And yeah. even even when they don't, I mean, they're still, what they're doing at the pedal is dif- different totally from what different. you and I do. Yeah. The smoothness of that stroke and the muscular yeah. coordination. I mean, it's, a, it's coordination is what yeah. it is, you know. Okay. And uh, again, on that, on my, well, it wasn't just that trip, but on my eventually ill-fated trip to France in 2006, I remember sitting on Alpe d'Huez waiting for the race to come through and all the recreational guys are riding. And every hundredth guy, doesn't matter how slowly he's going, you can say that that guy or that woman is good. Yeah. And it's not because of how fast they go, it's because of how they look doing it. Yeah. And that's so Supros have coordination and they, they acquire that over the course of ten thousand kilometers a year average from the time they're teenagers. And think about how many million pedal strokes they've practiced yeah. to get that ability compared to what we do. So yeah. anyway, so that's where cadence comes from. So back to your question is a taller person can pedal a longer crank because they've got longer levers with which to do it, but it doesn't end up giving them an advantage. And that's also remember that a tall guy is going to be heavier. You can't get length yes, without mass. With that one. And uh, <laughs> right. Cause you're one, and six, nine, one, nine, two and 95 kilos. Yeah. So, <laughs> so with, with elongation comes mass. And so we know that cycling mass is the enemy. So it's not it a is. surprise that everyone in the top 10 and that, okay, Dumoulin's probably the tallest vote for is pretty tall. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, in and fact, he's a, he's a fat guy at 77 kilograms, all about finite, isn't he? Relatively speaking. And that's heavier than Lance. Yeah, and that's again, not to drag it back to where it came from before, but that's where now you've got a guy who's that big, that tall, low altitude native, and we're in the altitude on the heavy climbs over 20Ks at 8%, 9%, mm. and he's shelling climbers. And everyone yeah. says, well, how's this? This defies what we think we understood about cycling. And that's yeah. part of the problem, you know? So it's the skinniness, it's the power despite the, the mass and the skinniness mm-hmm. of some of the anyways um so i'm gonna ask you to f- finish off with your sort of three takeouts from this year's mm. race but let's just before we just go there let's just talk about the young riders you've mentioned what for not now um a classics rider unbelievable domestique on the climbs mm. um winning stages i mean he had probably the best start to a cycling season in the history of cycling mm. one in a, a whole bunch of races before the Tour de France itself. Yeah. Um, but there are this new generation of athletes coming through. Do you think we're ever going to see the Frooms and the Grant Thomases coming back or no. are those days over now? No, I mean, I say no, but I mean, Thomas might win the Vuelta, yeah. but it's not the, it's not a strong Vuelta this year compared yeah. to what we've seen now in the last three weeks. Um, but I can't see that. I think that the, the, the we're clearly at a generation watershed now. Yeah. Um, and the new generation is younger than any generation before, which in is, yeah. itself is interesting. It's one of, and you said, I mean, this is one of my three scientific take homes or key stories. Well, let's, let's, go, stories. let's go with that first one. Then. Well, the first one we've covered um, is the doping question, you know, like this trust, the cynicism, the performance, which is always the thing in the tour. I love doing it. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't clarify anything really, but it's cool. The second one is the young rider thing. So it's interesting because the conventional wisdom in cycling was that you had to earn your stripes. Not your rainbow stripes, but your mm. in your colours, you know, and then that took four or five years. You'd come into a team as a young 20, 21 year old. You'd ride some of the smaller races. They wouldn't throw you into the tour till you're 24, 25. Then you'd be a young rider. Mm-hmm. You'd earn a couple That's of Tour de France. Exactly yeah. at that at that cutoff. Yeah. You'd earn your sort of experience and your your Palmares in in smaller races. You'd get a couple of tours under your belt, finishing in the. Sp- second second half of the race you'd ride the bus every day on the climbs and by the time you're 28 29 you could start maybe looking that was always the formula mm. now you've got guys hershey you've got obviously the race winners the second youngest guy ever yeah um and i mean the last one's 104 uh, 1904, 1904 yeah. it's yeah. crazy 
You've got, uh, you mentioned Fanat, you mentioned uh, his teammate was Sepp Kuss, young guy, first tour. Yeah. Um, Carapaz is relatively young, isn't he? 23, 24? Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, Lopez was the second guy on the young rider classification. Yep. I mean, so now you've got guys in their first tours or second winning not just the white jersey, but the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, being the key domestiques. Um, it's, so something's clearly different. And it's interesting to they wonder what that is. They're going to have a jersey is. for the old category. Yeah, they're going to have to replace it. Like who's the, who's the fastest 32 year old or something? Between Port and Valverde. Yeah, well, <laughs> you're going to have a 75 plus jersey for Valverde. Or yes. <laughs> um, so it's really interesting to wonder why mm. that is. And, and I think part of it might be, and I've got this theory always in anything in sports, it takes four or five generations to change something because mm. the first generation, it starts to change. They stuff it up usually. <laughs> the second generation, it starts to take hold. The third generation figures out how to do it. And by four generations, it's it's embedded. Yeah. And I wonder whether if we go back, because a generation for me is six, seven years. So if we go back 30 years, that's four gens, 1990, mm-hmm. that's probably where the intellectual capital in cycling started to change because it suddenly got professional. There were more races. The mm. teams expanded in size. There was more data collected in the race, heart rate initially, power output later on. And I suspect that data has accelerated development because now a young rider doesn't need to learn from 6,000 kilometers of racing. He can learn in 600 Ks what he might have learned in 6,000 before yeah. because the intensity and the volume of quality information that he gets is so much greater. Yeah. That, that, Just I don't pop know. onto Zwift and see what his average wattage indoor, is. Indoor riding. I mean, these yeah. guys have never had the opportunity to learn so much so quickly. Yeah, as they do now. So, plus there's plus there's more races. They're looking after the guys, I think, better in teams because they now recognise their assets. You know, like it's a business now. Mm. Um, and so, if you're paying a guy two hundred a year, you better keep him healthy and look after him. So, yeah. someone's paid now to manage that data and, and develop the guy. So, the only thing really that has to be acquired over time is now tactical nous and skill. That's the one thing data can't always help you with. But they have so many opportunities to race because the, the sport has grown, gotten bigger. Yeah. And you get these kids from Europe who are learning how to do that from their mm. early teens. And so you chuck a guy into his first tour in his early 20s and he's, he fits in. So yeah. I, th- I, th- I think that's probably the main reason for it. But yeah. it's an interesting phenomenon for sure. Well, we're watching the World Championships, of course, coming up this weekend uh, with great deal of interest to see who is going to be the winner of that one. I'm going to, I don't know, let's, should we have a little quick uh, side bet on the winner of the World Champs on Sunday? Well, Any the interesting ideas? question is, and I've heard this in your your second favorite podcast, is <laughs> they've had a big debate over whether the World Champs can be won by a guy who was in the race or not. Yes. Because that's a hell of a turnaround from a hard tour one week later to to do what is a unbelievably tough World Championship course. Yeah, a lot of hills. I mean, it's just five, I think it's, did I see correctly? 5,000 meters uh, of climbing. I haven't checked, to be honest with you. I, mean, I just know it's a lot of climbing. It's mad. It's huge numbers. Yeah. 260K, 5,000 meters. Mm. If you've got any residual fatigue, you are done after done three easy. climbs. Yeah. It's like, it's crazy. So potentially a rider who wasn't racing hard on the Tour de France or was taking it easy in the last day, the last week. Exactly. I was going to go Julien Philippe, but he was looking a bit knackered at the end of the uh, of the Tour de France. So maybe, yeah. maybe not just the one to look out for. Yeah, but I mean, who else? Who else Depends is the strongest team? The Italians are always strong. The Brits, it's a home race for them. Yeah. I mean, maybe Aru was just faking it at the Tour de France and just preparing for the World Championship. The problem these guys have all got is like they've got the carapace problem. Is 
doesn't matter how easy you go in the first two thirds. Yes. If you just don't have the legs, it doesn't matter because the other guy's going to kill you anyway at yeah. the end. Yeah. And so I, I, I would go, I mean, how's this for boring? I'm going to say Slovenia wins it. Okay, so either Roglic or yeah, Roglic are. Mm. yeah, and I, and I, because I, I just don't think there's anyone not from the tour with the caliber to beat even a tired tour rider at that level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About two knows. Yeah. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna. I'm gonna take a flyer at Grant Thomas. I think he did a right at the Adriana, uh, to Rick. What's it called? He said Tirana Adriatica. Tirana Adriatica. Yeah, I think he's. He was second there, and I think he's. Got a chance, and well, if he does that, the, uh, the Palmares to suggest oh, he's competitive. But if he does knows. that, the howls from the British yeah. fans will, will just intensify, <laughs> like about how he should have been the team leader of the tour. It's yes, interesting to one. Exactly. I, I don't think either he or I, I don't think Froome would have made the top fifty of the tour, yeah. and Thomas might have made top ten, but not top five. Yeah, in my opinion. Yeah, based on where they were in the Dauphiné, and although then again, I mean, we've seen that team produce miracle transformations before, yeah. so who knows. Yeah. Well, we're watching with a great deal of interest. But thank you to all of you that uh, got involved with us on Twitter. Of course, Sports SciPod is our Twitter handle. And uh, big thank you to our Patreon supporters who have been donating um, over the weekend. We've got three new ones. Uh, I think it is. Five, five Sorry, new ones. Five but I was just, I was just reminding you that you'd asked me for my three take-home science oh, things, and we'd only done two. Uh, okay, give me your third and one. And my third Sorry, one, I just want to make this, was just this final point about COVID. Because yes. so many people said that this race will not make it to Paris. And every single day, people were freaking out about the fans on the side of the road and yeah. how dangerous this was and blah, blah, blah. They tested everyone associated with the race twice. You know, so 700, between seven and 800 tests every Monday in the tour, mm -hmm. four positives in week one, zero in week two. And that for me, you know, when we did our COVID-19 podcast, we were saying that sport has opportunities to control the virus more than many other domains yep. because it it is such a bubble and you can protect the bubble better mm -hmm. than a restaurant or a hotel or whatever yep. can um and i think the tour proved that like and obviously they took major precautions to defend that bubble and we saw a lot of that some stages without fans the masks on the podium no handshakes all the, the interviews but it shows that it can be done and i think I think it's a very cool lesson for people to not panic about every little thing. Like we need to now say, if the tour can make it three and a half thousand kilometers around France, yeah. then then other sports need to find a way because there's a way to do this. And the tour was actually extremely successful. ASO did hell of a well to get it done. There's a few things that you could argue with, but let's say that yeah. this was a success, a COVID nineteen success story. Yeah. Yeah, well, shout out to the organizers for yeah, sure. For and I'm glad that we only had to talk about it for five minutes every two yeah. weeks and it wasn't the talking point. And I hope and I expect that that will be the same thing. And remember, France wasn't exactly dormant with respect to this disease. I no. mean, they were having a spike yep. in cases and, and yet still mm. you can do this thing. So yeah. let's, let's hope the Vuelta and the Giro get the same success and then move on. Like, let's get sport back now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was certainly a relief to see the Tour de France happening this year. And uh, for those of you that enjoy cycling or any kind of uh, endurance uh, sport, it's uh, lovely to see uh, the return of it on our TV screens. And if you were able to watch it on the route, even more amazing that must have been. But uh, until next time from us, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport podcast. 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.